Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, is at least one half of my co-hosts, Aaron. Say hi. Mike Vannon. Melin. Well, yes, you are. You are. You are my melon, uh, as are many of the listeners. I ho- well, I hope some of my melons, my melon, are listening. There's <laughs> a shout out to all my melons out there. Yeah, oh, I ruined that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Whoever asked for more elvish, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, it could make I could make it worse. Um, uh, melon uh, is Welsh for yellow, so you know. Mm. So, Aaron, what have you been up to this week? Uh, actually, this week has been a bit pants, really. Um, yeah, you, you were you, saying you've had a bit of a rubbish week. Your, your boiler's yeah. broken, your house has got cold. and Boiler, Boiler's broken, so if anyone listening knows uh, any tips, because um, I need an entire new system, which is not good. And uh, also, we've all been under the weather, uh, so it's been oh dear. A, bit, a bit rubbish. However... Um, one, uh, I can't remember what day of the week it was, but one of my days of of uh, not feeling too good, I sat by the front door and was just kind of watching the world go by outside the front door, getting some pressure. And I, it, there was, I think there was about five buzzards hovering over the, uh, over the in the thermals over the house. And uh, I noticed some of them were like doing this like aerial display, like dog fighting type thing, but it looked like mm-hmm. mock dog fighting, not not like not genuine. So that was really cool. Uh, really, really cool to see. And then of course today, I know this isn't live, but today we're recording this on Tolkien Tolkien Reading Day. So yeah, uh didn't so know that. I've been I've been uh reading and and watching and singing Tolkien. Uh, with my with my little girl, uh, I sing to her almost every night. I sing to her uh, far over the misty mountains, and today we read the Hobbit for like the. This will be the fourth run through, if you in- include the time when she was still in the womb. And uh, she, we got to the part where the dwarves are singing. Spoilers: if you've not read the book, you really <laughs> should. It's the best. Uh, it is the best story, The Hobbit. I love it. Movies. Not so much, but the, the book very good. Anyway, we got to the point where the dwarf starts singing Far Over the Misty Mountains, and she she sat bolt right up in bed. She said, Why are you singing Misty Mountains, Daddy? And I said, Because the song is from this book. And I, I showed her it, I read it, and she's just like, her jaw hit the floor, massive smile. Yeah. And she goes, Oh my gosh, it is amazing. <laughs> so that is how you how you uh, excite a three-year-old. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah. I mean, a proud dad moment. Kind yeah. of felt like, like, I kind of felt like, like, uh, my dad was probably smiling uh, mm. at that moment as well. Yeah, that's very sweet. Um, I, I, I got to admit, I've not done a huge amount this week. Thankfully, touch wood, touching some wood right now. There we go. Make sure <laughs> the the boiler seems to be fine with me, so I've not had. As bad a week as it comes to that with uh, with you. Um, I've been moving plants around, getting bits and pieces ready, and planted out my cockroach tank, and uh, put a whole bunch of different plants in there that I've had uh, ready to go. 
made it yeah. all look qu- quite nice. And then went and got a, a banana, sliced it in two for them, put it in their little dish right in the center. Everything looking pretty. Come back 10 minutes later and the ungrateful little gits had gone and started eating the plants as opposed to the nice oh, piece no. of banana I gave them. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm waiting until those plants oh. disappear. But, you know, it's fine. How terrible. Um, <laughs> they're fast growing enough that they should be able to cope. But um, it's it's always the way, isn't it? You think, oh, perfect. They'll love this. It's banana. You know, it's really, it's they're like... Sweet. Yeah, real favorite mm. sort of stuff. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, forget that. I'm gonna eat the spider plant instead. So yeah. Fun, fun, fun. What a bunch get, of jerks, tarantulas. Eh? At least they don't eat the plants. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, that was that's been the majority of my week, uh animal and or plant-based wise. But that's um cool. shall we move from uh what what we've been doing uh to well what's been happening out there in the uh, the wide world in the news? Yep. And we're into the news for this week. So, Aaron, Woo-hoo. why don't you uh, start things off with our newsreel? Will do, will do, will do. As regular cupboard dwellers will know, here in the uh, Natural History Cupboard, we like to keep you guys updated on the big news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. But we don't always have time to get through them all, so let's jump into the Natural History Cupboard newsreel and bring you all up to speed. Well, first up, tropical forest regeneration offsets 26% of carbon emissions from deforestation. And this is from Mongabay. They're reporting on a new study that analyzed satellite images from the Amazon, Central Africa, and Borneo, showing that recovering forests offset just 26% of carbon emissions from new tropical deforestation and forest degradation in the past three decades. And again, from Mongabay, uh, island hopping cougars redraw boundaries of big cats' potential range. Now, remember this headline because there's something <laughs> coming up in a minute. So basically, research shows that cougars swim in long distances across the Salish Sea. Try saying that with a, with a lisp, which challenges former conceptions of cougar ranges and habitat connectivity. It potentially means that cougars may have access to thousands of islands in the Pacific Northwest and would, interestingly enough, be dodging orcas as they did so. In other news, next in Kalak Mull, uh, Aaron, you're gonna have to tell me where that is because I don't know where that is at all. Uh, water, uh, Kalak Mull water troughs offer possible solution to human wildlife conflict. In an effort to reduce human wildlife conflict, a team of beekeepers and conservationists in Kalak Mull Biosphere Reserve are providing water troughs for wild animals. Their project hopes to combat the loss of water sources. Uh, wildlife are currently faced with due to climate change. The conservationists are practicing caution to avoid transmission of pathogens and not create predator traps as well. A bit of a follow-up now. Uh, With fewer salmon to eat, southern resident killer whales are spending less time in the San Juan Islands. Last year, I think, I brought an article to the show that discussed how wild stock shortages of salmon were affecting the southern resident orca pod. Well, this year, Fizz.org brings us a bit of an update as the pod is now spending less and less time in the region around Washington and British Columbia. The Chinook salmon population there has been in freefall for a long time, and now it appears that orcas are sighted about 75% less than in previous years. Interestingly, 
this stretch of water is the Salish Sea. Uh, so it would be really fascinating to understand the relationship between the salmon going locally extinct here, the orcas disappearing, and the cougars being able to safely traverse the waters there, as we just discussed before. Hmm. Uh, in other news, southern flying squirrels rediscovered in Honduras after 43 years. Coming to us from uh, fizz.org, uh, the discovery made possible by a project of El Alessandro Sansone. I am absolutely sorry that I butchered that. Uh, a company <laughs> focused on sustainable forestry activities in Honduras uh, found that at least one confirmed population of southern flying squirrels in the country at Las Lesuches site. At the Las Lesuches site. And finally, Fizz.org brings us news that scientists are using machine learning to forecast bird migration and identify birds in flight by their calls. In yet another success for machine learning tech, BirdCast, a collaborative project of Colorado State University, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and the University of Massachusetts, seeks to leverage data compiled through the next generation weather radar system to quantify bird migration. And that will do it for this week's Natural History Cupboard Newsreel. Guys, if you have a news story you want us to cover, send it in to us and you might see your chosen topical news article covered here or in our main topics. And with that said, we'll dive on into those main topics of which I am up first. And my news article uh, comes to us from the BBC online and it is, of course, beavers are to be reintroduced to West London. So... West End uh, yeah. Beavers. West, West London Beavers, yeah. Uh, it highlights potentially the next step in the ongoing rewarding of beavers to our little island. The mayor of London has gifted £40,000 to conservation groups in order for them to create a new home for two beavers. The site in Paradise Fields, Ealing, uh, would be the recipient of the first beavers to live in London for more than 400 years. And the planned wetland development and how those beavers will fit into and act within it is a part of an ongoing effort to stem climate change. The project is one of 20-odd spread across the city that aim to encourage rewilding and bring back wildlife. The land covered equates to about 116 hectares in total and has been pledged £850,000 in financial support a further one million has been uh one million pounds that is has been announced from city hall so relatively good figures i i, I think mm. um areas that could be rewarded uh include and forgive me i might pronounce this one wrong but uh rooslip rooslip woods rice slip rice slip woods thank you in west london uh enfield chase in north london and the thames marshes in bexley the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, had this to say, and I quote, Despite the harm inflicted on the natural world, we have the power to make amends, and I am committed to ensuring that London is at the vanguard of efforts to reverse the trends of declining biodiversity and the destruction of nature. Rewilding allows nature to take the lead and is an exciting way to create healthier ecosystems and allow humans and wildlife to live together more harmoniously. So uh, exciting times for Londoners, and a little bit... Uh, better rewilding political news than we had uh, last time I spoke about it with uh, Therese Coffey. <laughs> but has anyone thought about how we're going to have Cockney beavers? They're going to be going around <laughs> going, get out, my, get out of my damn. And supporting really poor football teams. 
Oh, Say goodbye to any Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, Crystal Palace, West Ham fans that we might have listening to us. Oh, but I love my Gunners. <laughs> uh, I, I don't actually support football. I'm just quoting the IT crowd there. <laughs> I think that's the first time an IT crowd reference has been made on this podcast. Very much so, I think. It took, but... took, us, took us three years to get there, guys, but uh, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's really good. To be honest, London's one of those places that's got a giant amount of waterways and lots of sort of park and garden and relatively touched, uh, untouched areas that have been, well, I say untouched, they are very much man-made, but have been allowed to be wild in, in that sort of sense. So, uh, mm. yeah, it's good to see. Right, well, should we move on from Cockney Beavers to... Uh, Ghost Dogs of the Amazon, which sounds like some sort of uh, 60s or 70s sci-fi thing. Ghost Dogs of the Amazon. Um, <laughs> I think so, you know. So Ghost Dogs of the Amazon uh, get a bit less mysterious is the full title of this article. And it's from the New York, New York Times. And it's scientists have produced uh, data that show the range of an enigmatic short-eared canid species that has... Uh, has yet to be widely studied. Now, this is one of the Amazon rainforest's most elusive and enigmatic mammals. Experts call the uh, the species shy or even a ghost. It's a dog, or at least a type of dog. It's a um, dog. It is. It's a very cute looking thing. I, I I like them. Yeah, I think they're awesome looking things. The short-eared dog, uh, and if you're unsure of what that is, because to be honest, I had never even heard of these animals. Uh, before uh, this article uh, came up. So go and pause the podcast. We'll wait for you. Go and have a quick Google, find out what it looks like, um, and you'll be able to see a picture of it. Welcome back. <laughs> the short-haired <laughs> dog uh, is the only member of the canine genus Atelosinus, uh, and only such um, species unique to the Amazon rainforest. In a study published last month in the Royal Society of Open Science, 50 researchers chipped away at the, the creature's mysteries by putting together a large location data set uh, gleaned mostly from camera trap cameos in other studies. Uh, by mapping the species range and determining its preferred habitats, the scientists, may, uh, many of whom have never even encountered the animal in person, hope to be able to protect it. So most of the people who worked on this project have never even seen this species in real life. They only just appear on camera traps, usually when it's other people trying to do other research projects. So Daniel Roker, uh, a graduate student at the University of California, uh, and the study's lead author, became interested in the short-eared dog in 2015 uh, when he began working in the southern part of the Amazon. He and his colleagues set up camera traps to study the local mammal community. Uh, as they looked through the footage, these dogs would appear. He said that they would appear with pricked ears and furrowed brows. They almost looked surprised to be caught on camera. I'm guessing they probably were to an extent. Uh, it surprised him too. Aren't we all? Well, yes. What the, where'd that come from? <laughs> <laughs> um, even locals who spend a lot of time in the Amazon don't often see short-eared dogs, uh, which they're assumed to be quite rare. They also evade uh, career researchers focused on this region. And Mr. Roker, who spent years leading the study, said, I've never even seen the dog in the jungle, ever. Carlos Piers, uh, an ecological professor at the University of East Anglia, who contributed to the study as well, 
has been working in the Amazon for nearly 40 years. His longest sighting of a short-eared dog lasted about 20 seconds as it chased a spiny rat into a hollow log. They're incredibly secretive, he said. Short-eared dogs uh, only live in the Amazon and are mostly solitary. Almost certainly the most rainforest adapted of all of the canids, uh, says Dr. Piers. Uh, they're most comfortable trotting around in the trees, far away from anywhere people might tread. And as a result, the species is one of the least studied dogs worldwide. Uh, Mr. Roker said, we don't know how uh, much about their life histories, reproductive strategies, or even how many of them exist. We don't even really know what they eat, although scat studies uh, have suggested they like fish, small mammals, and fruit. Um, pretty much the sort of things you'd find in the rainforest. Do we know how they fit into the... Uh into the dog family tree um from what i was able to find out they sit they're not even closely related to the other sort of amazonian dog the, the bush dog bush they dog. are in that south american canid group but they're their own little offshoot they're not closely related to any of them well the, the bush dog is closest relative is the main wolf and yeah. then if you go back from main wolf i think the main wolf Apart from apart from Bushdog, I think the main wolf's next closest cousin would be the African painted dog. Yeah, this is I this think. is a very sort of relic on his own at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Mister Roker started contact uh, contacting his peers about the short-eared dog, he found that nearly every researcher in the Amazon had a little bit of data, a uh, camera trap, uh, snapshot or two usually bycatch, essentially, from unrelated projects, he said. Uh, and this fits in neatly with um, what we've seen a while back, actually. We talked about this with the Pine Martins that were spotted in London, and that was on hedgehog camera traps. So it does happen. You, you can send uh, start looking for, um, for one species, and you can make a discovery in a completely different uh, species altogether. And by combining location data from the traps with the few in-person sightings as well as information from, from specimens in the natural history collections uh, from around the world. Uh, Mr. Roker and his colleagues were able to estimate the short-eared uh, dog's range and they found a wider distribu distribution than previous studies uh, had painted the dog. And it's now seen in five countries. They seem to inhabit an area bordered on the west by the Andes, north by the Amazon River, and south and east by the rainforest's edge. Uh, they also found a good part of its distribution is threatened by, as you could probably guess, deforestation. Said Mr. Roker, uh, he and his colleagues predict that if logging development and other pressures are not managed, the dog may lose 30% of its habitat by 2027. So that's just one species that would be affected uh, that way. Quote from him as well, we're so in the dark about one of the most widely beloved animal types. Imagine how much we don't know about less charismatic species, some of which may be similarly threatened, he said. Uh, if we don't know what we're losing, it's going to be really hard to care. And that's why I suppose studies oh, yeah. like this are really important because they bring an animal out of the darkness into the light so that people can you know, know about it. And I, I got to admit, I, I found them fascinating when uh, when I found out about them. It's another, also one of those stories that makes you uh, kind of grateful that we do have umbrella species. Yeah, yeah because yeah. It, we may never we we could very well have gone and never found anything of this animal, 
Um, it just slips through our fingers, it basically. Just, yeah, and it's extinct before we find out about it. However, yeah. if yeah, we yeah. have umbrella species in the area that is attracting the kind of the, the scientific work required to conserve them, then you're by accident conserving these guys and, and, and other smaller species that might be living in that area with this dog that we don't know about yet. Well, this is true. And the other big thing to be thankful for is the fast pace of the technologies used for things like this. So like you were saying about GPS uh, tracking of animals, satellite tracking and, and uh, being able to show areas that have been deforested so you can target things more effectively by looking at satellite images. Camera traps, they were they were impossibly expensive at one point. They're now... 30, 40 pounds for a camera trap. Well, most zookeepers have one now. And exactly. The can afford them. But... It's become standard sort of behavior and welfare things. Having the ability yeah. to have, we've we've got a, a camera that we can put in our kitchen to, to watch the dog if she's, you know, asleep in her, in her bed, mm. you know, and, and look at it from a phone. And you could, you could be, on the other side of the planet, as long as you've got an internet connection, you can use a camera, you know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that sort of technology has allowed this more. thing to happen. Yeah. So it's good yeah. It's good to see. But if you get a chance, go and have a look at what they look like. They are a gorgeous little thing. Um, and they do have that real sort of furrowed brow sort of expression. Mm. So It's a gorgeous looking dog. Yeah. Shall we go from our news article and... Uh, go further into the jungles as it were looking for our creature feature with Aaron this week it's the creature feature right well we're into this week's creature feature um Aaron where are we what are we doing what are we looking at well thank you professor g uh but first i'd like to start with a couple of questions for you actually oh so uh firstly do you have a favorite snake species um I've got a few favourites. Go on, then list your top five. I mean, one of them is is what you will be talking about. That's oh, always fantastic. Been, always been one of my favourites. It's a cool um, animal, isn't it? Very. Um, Death Adders, uh, they're definitely one of my favourites. Um, another sort of sit and wait for the food to come to them kind of snake. Hmm. Normal Adders, like European Adder. Yeah, they're nice. Gorgeous species. Um, I've always had quite a bit of an affinity for Escalopian snakes, just purely because of uh, all the time spent like with them at, at the Welsh Mountain Zoo. Hmm. Um, I suppose quite fond of uh, red belly black snakes. Yes, just because they're, they're so they're pretty. Nice. They are pretty, yeah. But I mean, there's I could, I could think of a bunch of different snakes that yeah, I quite like. Them. Fair enough. Well, this one definitely falls into one of my favourites. Uh, and second question, a bit random, really, but what is your favourite time of year? Like, Favourite time of year? Here in the uh, UK. It's definitely summertime. Summertime, okay. Yeah, okay. there's leaves on the trees. In fact, late spring, early summer. Leaves on the trees. The, the It's warmer, you know. There is more wildlife around. I can go outside and not go, nah. Don't like this going back in. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now the reason I ask you that second question is because when I go on like walks um in autumn over here, I can't help but look at the the dead leaf litter on the floor and fit and think that this animal 
would just be invisible amongst that. It would <laughs> it'd be like it'd be like trying to look for the predator. Um, so yeah, bit of a random question, but there was a there was a reason behind it. Well, this week, cupboard dwellers, we'll actually be flying on over to the African continent, uh, where we'll be doing a fair amount of trekking. We'll hike through forests ranging from simple woodland to dense rainforest and even across nearby grasslands and agricultural areas. We'll be looking in thickets, swamps, plantations and watercourses while sticking to the lower altitudes with the kind of heavier rainfall as we enter the realm of what is quite possibly the most beautiful snake in the world. Uh, and I am talking, of course, about the Gaboon Viper. Uh, so cupboard dwellers. Tonight, I will be your field guide, and after a couple of hours on the road, hoping to spot one basking, we've come up empty-handed. Some of you have fired me from my post as your guide, because we live in a world of instant gratification. <laughs> How am I supposed to get my Instagram likes of me posing exactly. with this snake two foot away from my face? Indeed. Um, but the more patient, or perhaps more misguided among you decide to follow me out even further into the bush. Um, now, Gaboon Vipers are insanely difficult to spot. In their nocturnal world, not only is darkness their ally that we've merely adopted, but the forest floor is littered with dead leaves, the very image of the striking scale pigments that form their near-perfect camouflage. Um, like I alluded to at the beginning, you... If these guys were in a pile of dead leaves, you wouldn't see them. The 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 um the color and the pattern on this snake is 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 just next to nothing. It's it's amazing. On top of these visual challenges that we're facing, we can't rely too much on the hope of catching movement either, because they are notoriously slow moving and ridiculously patient, able to lie in wait for hours at a time without so much as twitching. Now, Professor G, you'll be embodying our uh, our quarry this evening. Uh, cool. So tell us, you're clearly not basking. Our trip out here yielded no results, and the sun has now moved on from these lands. But the night is yet young, so what are you up to? Well, I, I'm the snake. You are the snake. Yeah. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably be sniffing out a bit of food, maybe a burrow of a rat or two. Mm. maybe getting close enough to, to sit there and wait for it to come to me. Very good. Yeah, hunting, of course. Uh, and you kind of mentioned one of the uh, the animals that you might be looking for this evening, but what else could be on your menu this evening? I'd say a bird if it was silly enough to land on the ground next to yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, some sort of reptile uh, as well. Yeah. Let's go extreme and say maybe a mouse deer if there's one of those around. That's sort of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a dick dick. But uh, yeah, I think that'd be, that'd be the, the main menu, wouldn't it? That, that's pretty that's pretty good, actually. So so yes, birds would be on the menu, particularly doves, guinea fowl and Franklin. Um, mammals as well, you mentioned. So field mice, rats, gambian pouched rats, hares, rabbits, smaller monkey species, brush-tailed porcupines uh, and young royal antelope again another small kind of ungulate um, then you've got your kind of standard amphibian affair of like frogs and toads and reptiles of course this might surprise you they can actually go for some of the monitor lizards too 
That um, is impressive. They will take on things that are equal to their size. And this snake is nothing if not strong, well-built, powerful, and stout. It's, in many ways, when you compare it to some of the big constrictors and stuff, This these guys are the, the dwarves, the Middle-earth dwarves of the snake uh, family. <laughs> Anyway, this this trek is uh, is hard going. Uh, even at night, these jungles are humid, uh, and we're yet to find anything. Indeed, we've searched here long enough, really. So uh, we're going to cross the border in woodland and enter onto a local rancher's plot, where the family has allowed us uh, kindly to search their land. On looking around, we notice that there is some livestock sheds with feed, and where there's livestock feed, there is of course rodents. Uh, so we go and have a look in, looking around there. We're looking underneath uh, machines, underneath tools, underneath wood, everything that we can find. Uh, and then we pull up a sheet of rusty corrugated iron and we make our first interesting serpentine discovery. But it's not the species we're looking for. It's pale brown in colour with two blonde stripes running laterally along its flanks. Uh, do you have any idea who, who this might be, Gareth? Well, I'm a snake, so I have no idea anyway. I don't speak your language. <laughs> Indeed not. Uh, well, this little butte is a brown house snake, also known as a, uh, a cape house snake. And um, whilst we're on it, we'll just bust a myth open right here. Uh, they're called house snakes because of the assumption or the, the widely held belief that people in Africa actually introduced these guys to their houses to, to hunt uh, rodents. And this isn't actually true. The snakes invite themselves there because of the the rodents that live around human dwellings. Uh, anyway, under close study, we find it's a girl and she measures just shy of four foot long. Uh, and they are very beautiful snakes. So if you get a chance do Google brown house snakes, they're lovely. Uh, but we have to continue because this is not what we're here for. So over by the feeds, we startle some mice who quickly scamper off about a second glance. Fantastic news for our new friend because house snakes can happily engorge in its entirety mouse nests in a single sitting they are uh voracious uh feeders but then the slightest reflection catches our eye and there near the barn access not far from the bed in storage is gareth the gaboon viper say yeah, hi gareth <laughs> very good uh <laughs> now gareth is a very healthy specimen <clears throat> boasting the stout Thank muscular you. build that the species is renowned for, while sporting the fantastically beautiful dead leaf litter camo. He is, well, a perfect adult. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Now, Gareth, you are a mun prey. Technically, you're also a mun a bit of interspecies competition too, um, but I'm pretty sure she's not going to bother you at, at your size. Now, how are you strutting into the room? How does a kaboon viper move? Um, Well... They don't do a huge amount of moving. They do not. They're sort of, sort of snake. They're, they're very wide for snakes. They are very. But wide. I assume I've never actually seen one moving. But I assume they can shift if they want to. Hmm. Well, the uh, at this point, uh, undisturbed as you are, uh, you'll be taking on the uh, slug slug-like walking motion that is often employed by this species. Um, it's a method of locomotion referred to as rectilinear movement and it involves essentially compressing and stretching the length of the body in a forward only direction now oh. gareth did say uh did kind of allude to this but the viper only relies or sorry this viper only relies 
on the side to side slivering in order to get away at speed and it will maintain this over only a short distance but we're going to try not to disturb gareth too much he has noticed us however and he's halted in his tracks so we can actually luckily get down and record some data we start by measuring his length he's roughly 137 centimeters long and the tail makes up about 16 centimeters of that total length you got any idea what this means for you gareth um i look like a, a slightly fat sausage and then there's like a thin <laughs> bit at the end of me <laughs> it, it means that you're more than likely a male um ah, a, a, i mean a, an assumption that enough. we're not going to test because sex and snakes <laughs> is quite intrusive and this guy is pretty venomous but yeah it means you're probably a male because the tail in males is normally about 12 percent of the total body length whilst in females it works out usually six percent we're then going to do something incredibly stupid something that in the real world you should never ever do um, and we are, of course, talking about picking him up. And I mean yeah, both Gareth the human, who doesn't like hugs, and Gareth the snake. Why should we not pick up Gaboon Viper Gareth? I mean... It's pretty the, obvious. The fairly obvious reason is they're insanely venomous. Indeed. Uh, now, hypothetically... Also, why... the other reason you shouldn't try and pick me up is I weigh too much and you're <laughs> going to hurt your back. And also, I'm not going to want to be picked up. <laughs> Uh, and also, it's not very nice to manhandle wild animals anyway. Or Gareth. Uh, Gareth. But hypothetically speaking, why can we pick you up in this case? To move me away from someone's house, I'd imagine. <laughs> Actually, that, that's probably a better reason why I've got here. I was oh. just going to say that because, <laughs> the truth, because you, are, uh, uh, you are in more ways than one true to the reputation of your species in that you're you're not just calm, but you're extremely docile and amenable to handling. Surprisingly. Oh, well, you can just say I'm just lazy. <laughs> I could bite you, but, ugh, you know, <laughs> much effort. The advantage of picking you up is that it gives us an opportunity to weigh you. Uh, the result is a decent nine kilograms, so you're only a couple of kilograms shy of where your species kind of maxes out to. Um, and whilst examining you in hand, we can have a look at your head. Now, large and triangular are the descriptors that our cupboard dwellers would be given us if they were actually here in the field with us. Um, and they'd probably take note of the uh, tiny pair of horns emerging from between the nostrils, which gives you a little bit of a, of a, um, of a devilish kind of look. Yes, scary. Um, we also get a good look at those eyes of yours. They are oh, large. They are noticeably larger and set forward on the face, uh, and we can better appreciate the mobility of these organs. In fact, as a gaboon viper, Gareth enjoys greater mobility than any other snake in in his eyes at around uh, about forty five degree movements. You, you can make. basically the googly eyed snake. It, you actually pretty are because <laughs> oddly enough. These snake, th these eyes behave as if they were attached to one another via an, an axis, um, and they move simultaneously in opposite directions in sudden jerking movements. <laughs> and it makes me think of those little googly eyes that you stick on things, and when you fling yeah. that thing about, the eyes just ping yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, there's your mouth. You are armed with the longest fangs and the highest venom yield of any venomous snake in the world. Well, if you're yeah. gonna, if you're gonna, you know, it's go hard or go home, really. Yeah, so it should go you. Well done. 
So yeah. we're now going to pop Gareth back down. There's no need to overstep his friendly demeanour. He is, after all, still a viper. But yeah. upon settling, uh, and with us at a comfortable distance, we're able to enjoy watching Gareth go about his vis- his his business, his viper business. Um, now, what are you going to do now you're free in the barn-shaped restaurant? Well, probably find a nice corner somewhere to sit, get away from these large hairless apes that have been manhandling me. <laughs> uh, find somewhere to settle, settle down and wait for uh, prey to come to me. Exactly, Gareth. You're going to hunker down at a spot under a, a rogue weed. I say weed in in thick and heavy quotation marks because we all know weeds are, are beautiful plants that just humans can't see their beauty in. And then you're going to wait. And yep. so we must wait. And wait we yep. do. You know and what? Wait. It's my ideal way of hunting is just <laughs> wait for the food to come to me. Indeed. But yeah, we're, we're stuck here waiting. I mean, I quite often sit here on the couch and just wait for food to come to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the kitchen's only over there, but, you know, I'll just I'll just wait. I'll just wait until the kitchen will come to me. <laughs> anyway, Gareth, we've we've waited long enough. So are you. Um, but you are neither a creature of haste nor a showman. But luckily for all of us, humans and snake involved, not so much for the uh, unfortunate rat that's about to pass within your range. Gareth, a rat is passing right by you. Um, now, how do you proceed? I go chomp, inject uh, it with a with a good amount of venom, and let it just run off somewhere and keel over. Ooh, <laughs> our Gaboon Viper has made a mistake. <laughs> ah, so Gaboon Vipers um, too relaxed. That's the problem. Kaboon Vipers are not stalkers. They are very relaxed, but also they're very mighty. Uh, Gareth is the watcher in the dark. Uh, once that rat is in range, and I mean anywhere in range, the Gaboon Viper can strike from and at any angle with a remarkably impressive flexibility and accuracy. Gaboon Vipers have one of the fastest strikes in the snake world, but luckily, our slow motion cameras have picked up the strike and we're able to see yeah. the engagement of the venomous fangs able to move uh, to better position themselves or even retract should the strike be about to miss or land in a less than desirable area of the rat's body. But luckily on this occasion, it's a direct hit. Gareth has proven himself to be an efficient and learned predator. So Gareth, uh, you've struck and your target has taken the full hit of venom and you've let him run off. Uh, which is unfortunate because unlike other vipers, you're not a hit and hide type snake. No, indeed not. Our Gareth is a fighter. You are a grappler, my friend. So whilst others would follow the uh, envenomated and doomed prey, Gareth hits his rat, delivers his venom, and then he hangs onto it. Um, And he holds his victim and ties uh, this little rat out whilst his venom gets to work. Now, Gareth, do you know anything about um, about Gaboon Viper Venom? I don't know what kind of venom it is, no. Well, I've, as I've kind of alluded to in the past on this podcast, I'm a bit of a fan of venom. Uh, I've broken down venom for uh, uh, for the blue-ringed octopus and maybe for, for another species, but I can't, I can't remember if that's right. Definitely the blue-ringed octopus. But I really love venoms and how they work. Uh, so I'm going to break this down for you. So... 
whilst you're holding on, tiring out this rat, uh, and your venom is slowly coursing through its body, on the one hand, this weapon is cytotoxic. Now, this means that it attacks cell function. On the other hand, it's also cardiotoxic, which means it, it causes heart malfunction. So symptoms include pain, swelling, bruising, and blistering uh, in the area. It also involves a loss of coordination, uh, entry into shock, loss of bodily functions. So you'll likely soil yourself. Uh, you'll get swelling around your eyes. Your tongue could swell up. You'll, you could start fitting and convulsing. You'll then lose consciousness. Necrosis will set in very quickly. Sudden hypertension. So your blood pressure will just drop uh, through the floor. Uh, you'll find that you will get a shortness of breath or an inability to breathe efficiently. Damage will then occur to your heart and loss of the blood's ability to clot. Uh, so it's an anticoagulant as well. Uh, so all if in you all... have any of these side effects, please see your doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All in all, this is a really bad day by any standard. Um, <laughs> this would be a bad day even compared to a stroll through Mordor on your way to, uh, to melt the ring, which... By the way, that's why today is uh, Tolkien reading day, because the 25th of March is the day, according to the books, where Frodo and Sam actually do the uh, the old ring into the uh, into the fiery chasm of Mount Doom. Oh. Anyway, back to our snake. <laughs> if one of us uh, were to take a hit, a mere 0.06 millilitres would be enough to cause us serious trouble. A little over twice this amount would kill a person in our in our weight range. Um, and the fatal potential to a human uh, sits within 150th to 1,000th of the amount of venom that can be produced from a single milking. So this is an incredibly tiny amount. Um, you're looking at needing anti-venom local excision of uh of of the flesh uh and even amputation and often even these treatments will not be enough to save you uh, many victims are known to have sadly died during recovery period as opposed to the initial moments of fighting the venom and, and being treated for it but back to uh gareth's rat you guys now know what it's experiencing it's uh it's really not having a good time but it's finally joined the cosmic force and is having Gareth's jaws walk over and envelop it. So Gareth's a happy chap. And we are all like a little bit more wiser about what a Gaboon Viper can do to us. <laughs> so after a couple nights rest and digestion, Gareth decides to shift off. He heads out across the rough area of Ranchland and into the woodland. In time, he stops uh, because he spotted a second Gaboon Viper. It's a male. Gareth, you'll give out a loud, deep hiss, please. Oh, very good. And you will flatten your head, which I'm not going to ask you to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not working. Now, a third Gaboon Viper is close by. Uh, it's a heavier looking, but shorter in tail uh, specimen. And it's likely a female. So the male approaches Gareth and he rubs his head along the length of our good professor's back. <laughs> get off, get how, off. How will you respond, Gareth? Will you uh, A, strike, B, reciprocate the head-to-back rub, C, superficially inflate your body size, or D, raise your head off the ground? I'm going to go with superficially inflate my body size 
and then try and raise my head above the ground to sort of get get above him, you know, mm. like, to dominate. Well, you're 50% there. The answer is D. You raise your head as high as possible. Now, your rival will then answer this by trying to match your stretch. And as he does so, your body's entwine and the grapple begins. Um, now, in some cases, closed mouth strikes may occur, um, which is kind of gentlemanly, you know, like like not <laughs> envenomating rivals. That's, that's very good. And sometimes two battling snakes can be so ignorant of their own surroundings that they fall off short drops or even fall into bodies of water. Um, so I imagine, I've never seen this, but I imagine that uh, the Gaboon Viper combat is quite funny to watch. Now, <laughs> the idea of, the, the aim, really, of this grapple contest is that you are to pin your opponent's head down to the to the floor and that would make you the winner it, it, it very very wwe like on this occasion however the fight ends by mutual decision which is how many fights between these snakes uh actually end and the rival moves off leaving gareth to woo the female now gaboon vipers are ovoviviparous sorry now gaboon vipers are ovoviviparous meaning that they hold the eggs within until hatching time at which point they technically give birth to live young so to speak uh, now breeding will take place uh, during the dry period with 10 inch snakelings being born in the rainy season a healthy female like the one our gareth was able to attract would be able to bear about 60 snakelings in one batch but she won't breed every year now these newborns will mature in about three to five years at which point they'll be free to contribute to this amazing species themselves it seems uh, in terms of uh, threats and conservation that not much really bothers the Gaboon Viper. Within reason, they are fairly adaptable. And while secretary birds may pick off their young, the adults are not particularly predated upon uh, once they go beyond a certain size. The main non-human threat to this species appears to be clumsy, blundering ungulates trampling them uh, <laughs> when they're unaware of their presence in the in the undergrowth, which is uh, unfortunate. Um but a determined human motivated by fear may contribute to Gaboon Viper fatalities. And unfortunately, as we head back through the rainforest to the truck, we know our farm-frequented friend, Gareth, may not be long for the world. Because if he no. keeps hanging out around farms, there's going to be trouble. Uh, but they do mostly dwell in very undisturbed places, threatened only by habitat disturbance threatened only by habitat disturbance and destruction. In fact, so few are accounts of human Gaboon Viper confrontations that fear and revenge killings seem to be the most likely um, causes of death. Uh, furthermore, the IUCN doesn't list them, which whilst concerning, as I'd like all species to be listed in some way, it does make a nice change to end a creature feature on the fact that they are at least not yet considered threatened. Uh, and that has got to be something to something positive to take away from. Hmm, uh, what a fascinating, I mean, I'm biased, but what a fascinating and beautiful species, guys. Thank you for uh, for coming on that journey. Hmm. And uh, to you too. <laughs> <laughs> That's Gaboon Viper for very good. Yeah, I, I, I really like them. They're, they're one of those snakes that they're just just so pretty to look at 
I remember the first time I ever saw, because I've, I've not yet seen a live one, and I remember the first time I saw a, a photo of one was in a little hand pocket handbook of snake species. And I had to Google, after seeing this tiny little image, because it's a little, like, little thumbnail image, I had to Google it, and my mind was blown. It, I think it is, the, it's not my favourite snake, it's definitely probably in my top five, maybe my top three. But it is, in my opinion, undoubtedly the most beautiful species of snake. And there are some stunning uh, colours uh, with snakes. Uh, some that are just, you know, you've got hues of blue and green and red that are just super bright. But then this animal is striking, but relatively dull. Like I say, the colour of, of dead leaves. But the, it's just... The pattern and and this uh, the the array of colours and the fact that it is just I don't know an animal that is that perfectly camouflaged. Um, yeah, you can see photos of snow leopards of a of a rocky terrain, and some will say like, "Can you find the snow leopard?" And I'll be able to pick it out in in an instant. But gaboon vipers, the picture can be a close up of a gaboon viper, and you'll struggle to see it. It, they really are fantastically camouflaged species. They are the amazing. Venom is just amazing. Yeah, no, they're they're an amazing species of snake. Um, right. Well, let's move from the forests of Africa and uh, head into the 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 darkened woodland areas. That is, in fact, our mailbag. <laughs> hopefully, there's no large venomous snakes hiding in there either. No, hopefully not. Can you imagine that sticking your hand in there? No, that would be rather bad and rather stupid. <laughs> Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's mailbag, and we're going to start things off with our question for the listeners uh, from last week, which was, what's your favourite grassland living species? We only had the one reply to this one. I'm guessing not many people have got that many grassland species that are their favourites, but uh, I, you know, I, I will go with what we've got. Uh, and it's come from uh, Jen Babs. Being a person brought up looking at grassland in terms of grazing for horses, uh, I was taught that there were good grasses and bad grasses. Uh, I now know better. I like the crested dog's tail, sweet vernal, and coxfoot. Uh, is that what you meant? I'm thinking plant life after the excellent dandelion episode. If not, I also love curlews and skylarks. Some very good choices there of different species uh, that you might find in those areas. We we're quite happy with plants. We're also quite happy with animals. We don't uh, we don't discriminate um, when it comes to uh, favourite species that you'd find there. So, a very good answer um, from uh, Jen there. Um, nice to get some uh, some plant plant life, really. Yeah, it's always nice. Aaron, you've got our listeners' question for this week. What have we got? Yeah, I have. It's another um, interactive one, uh, actually. And that is, as uh, our UK listeners will, will undoubtedly be aware of, the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis, has been making its presence known much further south than it usually would do. Uh, usually uh, in the UK, you're lucky in Scotland to see it. But the last week or so, you've been able to see it as far south as Cornwall. Um, so our question for this week is a bit of an interactive one. We would like 
to see your photos and this can be from anywhere in the world whether it's where you live or where you holiday to uh, whether you are from the UK or whether you are from the US or Tasmania wherever you are in the world if well, of you course, been... it's not going to be the Aurora Borealis if you're in Tasmania. No, but I mean, if they've been on holiday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, good point, though. If you've, It'll be if the Aurora seen, Australis. If you've seen the Aurora Australis, uh, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, Australis, yeah. Southern. If you've seen the Aurora Australis or the Aurora Borealis, wherever you are in the world, holidaying or where you live, like I say, then we would like to see your photos, but we'd also like to hear your experience, hear your story about it. Mm. So you can uh, you can you can submit your photos and your stories to us, but it's more to kind of hear your stories alongside these photos and get some interaction with you all and get to get to know you guys a little bit better. You can do that by posting your pictures or your comments on the uh, in, in the comment section of that. Uh, post that will be up on Facebook or Twitter. We also, you can send them in via our email, uh, which is thenathistorycovered at gmail.com uh, as well, if you want to send them in. But we've um, got... On a slightly related note, yeah. uh, my my uncle the other day sent me a photo, sent me a photo of a natural phenomenon called a rainbow bridge. Mm. Um, and I highly recommend that people go in and uh and google that google uh cloud phenomena um rainbow bridge it is amazing oh wow that's amazing you'll have to ask him if we can use it and we'll put it up on the uh uh, on the socials yeah so um this week we've got our email that's coming to us from paula tregale they've asked uh what pets have you and your partners had throughout your lives my husband thinks uh, we have a lot with four fish and a dog, uh, but as a kid, we had a heap uh, had heaps more. Um, well, I'll start this one off because I'm sitting no more than uh, three feet away from one of our current pets, um, and that is a dog. She's the best way to describe her is she's a shadow with eyes because uh, <laughs> if she sits if she sits on the black couch that she's currently sitting on, uh, and you don't see either the white little bit of fur on her chest. Uh, or the tiny bit of white on her feet, you could quite easily sit on her because you wouldn't know she was there. So she's, uh, yeah, she's she's a bit of a, a an everything. So she's not a specific breed. But also upstairs, we've got a tank with some hissing cockroaches in. I've also got a pet parrot, an Indian ringneck. Both myself and my wife did have uh, rats um, quite a while ago now. Um, we've had various different stick insects and other different insects uh, over the years, wetters, different kinds of beetles, praying mantises, all sorts. And then going back as far as I can for myself, um, I've had all sorts of different Australian fish. At one point in my bedroom when I was uh, uh, living at home with my parents, um, I had about five different fish tanks of Australian native fish, even had barramundi outside in a large tank. Um, what else uh, aviaries with with a variety of different parrots in them budgies and stick insects again um and i know that my wife has had horses dogs rabbit she's making a, a symbol she's putting her hands up on her head i'm assuming that's rabbit yes that's rabbit didn't know she had a rabbit one rabbit many years ago but yeah so it's we've the thing is when it comes to having animals it's 
Sometimes you have more than you expect that you're going to have. Sometimes you have less. But as long as you give them the right level of care, um, then, you know, if you've got the time to put in, then you you can have a, a gigantic amount of animals. But there's no point in collecting them like they're stamps. Um, mm. You, you yeah. have them to basically, well, to keep them as well as you possibly can. So, yeah, Aaron, what what have you got and uh, what has your, your other half got? So right now we just have two cats, Artemis and T'Challa. Long-term listeners of the podcast will will know very well about about Artemis, I suspect, because we've named her, name-dropped her a couple of times, and she's made her presence known. On she's the also podcast dropped herself well. onto your microphone as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one time during the podcast, she scared the, uh, the everlasting poop out of me when her paw appeared from behind the screen and I had no idea that she was there. Um but yeah she she is she's my my best friend. Um she she's actually from from Spain and she kept me company over there and uh, I brought her back with with me. I got her a pet passport and everything. Um but historically uh, I've had fish I've had fish quite successfully um on a couple of occasions a rabbit a guinea pig i've had a, a mul- multitude of cats an army a pride of cats in, <laughs> i think it's called a, i think it's called a glaring a glaring <laughs> i've got um i i sorry i've had two dogs um not not of my own but family dogs uh we've the family have had horses um ducks chickens guinea fowl you've had sugar gliders I was going to say my partner has had sugar gliders uh, and she used to have a dog, kind of blonde or strawberry blonde kind of coloured husky it was. Um, and also like her family uh, still have a um, uh, African grey parrot. So yeah, we've, I mean, we've had, uh, oh, we've had pigs. The family, sorry, has had pigs um, and, uh, and, and sheep. So yeah, yeah, a whole... And how what one thing that's been on my mind recently because uh, I've always missed them, but now that I have stability, well, I say stability, but now that I have uh, a home, I I've started to really really miss my snakes. I had two snakes, a corn snake called Briag, and a uh, royal python called Gorbash. Um, <laughs> and good names. Yeah, and if anyone if anyone gets that reference, in fact, if anyone gets that reference. Uh, send it into on in Facebook or or whatever. I might put up a post about it. Actually, I'd love to know if anybody gets that reference because that's that's deep fantasy nerded. Oh nerd, yeah, nerding. But um, fantastic film. The yeah, I I've really I've I've always missed them, but I, I've really started to miss them since there's now like you know there's little spaces in the house where I think like I wish I still had them, but I had to I had to give them up. I had to rehome them because I was moving the house a lot. Their tanks were starting to, like the the structural integrity of the tanks was starting to suffer for it, and I just felt like you know they they get to a place for a few months and then they're packed up and, and they go somewhere else. So I I decided to give them to someone who uh, who had more stability than me. Um, mm. I hear that they're doing well, uh, but I would love to see them. I do miss them greatly. Do you know what you just reminded me of uh, of one other animal that I did have? I mean mm. I. Some of the other ones that we had in Australia, we had um, 
blue uh, blue tongue skinks, mm. both wild and pet ones. Uh, the various different birds that I've ended up taking in as rescues, and the most charismatic one that has always had a special place in my heart. Uh, we called him very imaginatively. I'll have you know, for a like a twelve-year-old, we called him Pidge. Uh, Pidge, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Pidge flew in one day and just landed on my uh, on on my dad, uh, and just sat there, and then just hopped along and landed on me, and then he decided to just live with us. So he lived outside on our veranda. Um, we fed him. He had a small nest. He was the the nicest little. Uh, the crested pigeon, basically. It's a species of Australian pigeon. Really, really beautiful little birds. Uh, really common, you know, garden bird that you'd see there. But evidently this one had either been hand-reared by someone and had disappeared or had just been very, very friendly and decided to live uh, to live with us. And he stayed with us for about a year and a year and a half until one night there was a massive storm and he disappeared. So we, we never found out what happened to him, so... It's kind of sad, actually, but he was—he was such a lovely pigeon um, that lived with us. And I know my, my just, wife has also kept uh, pigeons that she's hand reared as well over the years. You've just—you've uh, just sparked a memory in me as well because I—I <laughs> too. There's just birds. too many animals, really, isn't there? Yeah, I've had other, other than the chickens and the ducks and the guinea fowl. Uh, me and my brother had a—we had a pair of uh, of like white doves, mm. pure white doves. Uh, they were called Ben and Oliver, and then. I also um, took on a, uh, a jackdaw once, whose name was uh, Woden. Yeah, it was Woden, I think. It was, a, it, it's, it, it was um, it's another name for Odin. Yeah, the Anglo-Saxon yeah. name for him, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, yes, the, well, the simple answer to this is if you spend your life around animals, you're always going to end up either rescuing some having some as pets or being given some by other people who go, Oh, well, they like animals. So it, it, it can sometimes seem like you've got too many and you can have too many. Mm. If you, especially if you become a hoarder and that's where you start just, you know, collecting for the sake of collecting. Well, but if that, you... No, I've never liked the, I've never liked it when people have multiple snakes all in trays. Yeah. Like, yeah, like yeah. a stack of trays. I can't stand that. I, I like big, beautiful variums. That, that, yeah. yeah the, like a, a, a micro habitat type thing. That... It all, it all comes down to if you care enough about the animal's welfare, it will show. And like mm. I said, you could have multitude, uh, multitudes of animals, multiples of animals. If you, uh, if you actually look after them properly, but anyway, if you, dear listener, want to get in contact with us and find out what variety of different animals we've had over the years, uh, we've not even got onto the animals that Drew and Jess have had over the years. Um, but uh, hopefully he'll be able to fill that one in for us at some point. Uh, but if you want to, you can get in contact with us on our email. Uh, like I say, it's thenathistory at um, gmail.com. Uh, we also are available on our Twitter and our Facebook pages, as well as Instagram and not forgetting our fantastic T-Mill store where you can get all of that lovely merch. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, remember that you can obviously leave us a review, like and subscribe uh, on any what a, uh, any and whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on. Yeah, do that. That makes perfect sense. Uh, but tell a friend, tell an enemy, leave a comment, get a Gaboon Viper to text in. They might find it a little hard because they haven't got any thumbs, but uh, you know, let, let them know as well. 
Um, but that just leaves me to say a big thank you to you, Aaron, for uh, coming along, telling us you, all about you, Gaboon Vipers. Very welcome. I I enjoyed going down the the, uh, the trail of the Gaboon Viper. Can I just add a little request for our listeners? You can. Please, 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 please. If if it'll take you just a few seconds, but uh, we've been looking into how to get the podcast out to more more people and grow our audience and spread the word. And one of the best ways you can help us do this is go onto your app where you listen to us very quickly, give a rating and a review uh, because podcasts that are reviewed are, are often seen more. And if you're on Apple podcasts or, or, or iTunes podcast, whatever it is, uh, you can actually put us in your in your recommended podcast or favorite podcast or something like that. If we're not your favorite, we won't be offended. But if you could slip <laughs> us into that that list, it actually boosts our visibility because people will see that we're uh, that that people really like us, uh, well, even you if go. you don't. <laughs> but yeah, please do that because uh, it, it really helps. Indeed, thank you very much for that, Aaron. That's uh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's that's how we should we should uh, we should leave it. So um, a big thank you for you at home listening. Uh, and we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Another session in the recording booth is, again, not long enough to be amongst some excellent and admirable hobbits. <laughs> Indeed. You fool of a toque.